It's, um, it's good to be with you all. If I have a chance to meet you, I'm Joe and uh, pastor here, and we are starting a new series. Before, before we get into it, I want to let you know a little bit of what's been uh, going on, um, if you haven't been following the news. Uh, about three years ago, Casey uh, Goodman Jr. was uh, gunned down in his home, shot, I think, six times in the back um, while he was putting the key into his door by uh, Deputy Sheriff Jason Mead. Um, evidence against Jason Mead was uh, strong enough that eventually the prosecutors brought a case against Jason, and then it took years at this point, but eventually the trial happened. And if you've been following the news, as I know many of our friends have, uh, many of my friends have, um, it uh, resulted in a hung jury twice and ultimately a mistrial. Uh, and so I'm not 100% sure um, what's going to happen next. I, I share this because... Um, <clears throat> We've done a lot of work around violence reduction, and uh, we've been able to connect with a lot of um, uh, mothers of murdered Columbus children, if you remember them. That community is friends with Tamala, which is uh, uh, Casey's mom. Um, so they're, you know, they're all kind of in the same community. And because of that, I, I, I saw an event, and I went to a prayer vigil for the trial that was going to be happening. And um, I shared this with staff the next day, um, and I want to share it with you. It was a very... Um, profound experience. Um, I was in a room uh, which was majority black or people of color, and they were going through a series of prayers. They were praying for, you know, different people uh, related to the trial. And, and it was including Jason Mead, and, and they spent some time praying that, you know, and, and the mom actually got up, Tamala got up and, and talked about why she wanted to spend time praying for Jason Mead, the deputy sheriff who shot her son in the back six times because she's, she was talking about how Jesus calls us to love our enemies and love everybody. And so I was just like, you can imagine just like what that was like. And there was this override. I just walked away, and this is something that I feel like sometimes we miss in, in, our, in our faith experience. But um, I walked away with this sense of this deep recognition that sometimes... The world doesn't work the way we think it should. Uh, we use the word injustice for this, right? So the, the fact that, that there was race-based slavery for multiple generations, well, that's not a good thing. Like, that, that shouldn't have happened. And a variety of other injustices that have happened in our country and in other countries were not the worst and were certainly not the best. Uh, but throughout the history of the world, things have just not been the way they were supposed. Like, this should have been better. And there was this deep sense of, like, recognition that sometimes the world is pitted against you or against certain people groups or against certain identities, whether that be for race or gender expression or whatever. And, and the world is, like, and it's, there was this real sense of that. You could just feel it in the room. But there was also this really profound sense that God is bigger than that and that we're going to trust God anyways. And so this like tension existed in the room. This is, this is Joe the philosopher analyzing a worship service, by the way, so <laughs> take it for what you will. Andy's laughing because he's a philosopher. <laughs> you had this tension in the room of this like, the world is not as it should be, and there's injustice, and, and, and sometimes things work out, they're not, they, ah! And then, but I'm going to trust God anyways, and God is bigger than that, and God can do work through it, and God can change, and God can, and so there was this, this really intense tension. 
I share this with you for two reasons. One is I think it's important for you to know. If you haven't been paying attention, I encourage you to. It's important. The second reason is because that's what we're going to talk about today. I'm going to talk a lot about the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of this world. Those are biblical phrases. And we can kind of, you can kind of like not sure what I mean by that. And, uh, um, but I want us to, I want you to know what I'm talking about. When I talk about kingdom of this world, I'm talking about governments and kingdoms and nations and cities and systems that don't work as well as we wish they would, where they are broken and at times unjust. Okay, do you, do you kind of see what I'm saying? Like that we belong to a kingdom of this world. We are a citizen of a kingdom of this world called America. There are other kingdoms of this world, you know, but that's a phrase, a biblical phrase that I want us to know what I'm talking about. We're talking about systems of government and the way in which we organize ourselves as a people, whether it be through democracy or whatever, communism, all of these are kingdoms of this world that are not as good as they should be. And, and we're going to compare that to the kingdom of God as our scriptures uh, reflect. So with that in mind, um, we are starting a new series. We are going to walk through Jesus' story by following the images of stained glass that surround us, which is, uh, you know, pretty, uh, pretty fun. And what you'll find is that each one of these images um, tells a little bit of the story of Jesus walking all the way towards the cross over here. So it starts over here. Now, Fun fact, you have to pretend there's two glasses right here because there used to be. I don't know if, you know, I know some of you like, we come in the lobby and then you walk in here and uh, if you've not, you know, it's like, whoa, I'm in the front. I don't, I didn't design this building, okay? But originally there was not a door here. There was, and they're actually in the fellowship hall. So those are the two glasses that have to do with Jesus's uh, birth. And then you can't see them, um, but they're, they're in the fellowship hall. And then there's one for innocence, which we're still trying to figure out what that means. So if anyone's got any ideas, I'm pretty sure it has to do with just Jesus being a child at one point. So we're going to start today with the second panel there with the little seashell that represents water, Jesus' baptism. And then the next one back there with the little mountain where it talks about temptation, where Jesus is brought up on top of a mountain and Jesus is tempted. Now, here's the thing you got to know about these stories. The story of Jesus' baptism and temptation is the start of Jesus' ministry. And Jesus, when, when this story was written, um, it, was, it, was, it wasn't reality TV, which is you know, ridiculous anyways, but it, it wasn't written when it was happening. It was written many years later. Everyone knew how the story ended. And so when we go back and we read the story of the baptism and the temptation and the beginning of Jesus's ministry, we're supposed to be aware of, like, we know where it's going, okay? So it's going over here. You can see a little thorn, uh, thorns and the cross. Like, we know what's ahead. Jesus is going to be met with a world of violence. He is going to be falsely accused, beaten, and eventually killed at the hands of violent people, hence the kingdoms of this world. That's where it's headed, and we're supposed to know that that's where it's headed, and so the way it starts is really important. I don't know if you've ever felt like the world was against you. 
if you've ever really felt like the people who loved you turned away from you and, and rejected you and tossed you aside and you just, I don't know if you've ever felt that in those moments where you just like, you, we just came out of a mental health series, this is part of mental health, where you just, depression and anxiety become so overwhelming that you're just like, I don't think anyone loves me and the whole world is against me. I found that in order to bring something new into the world, it requires a willingness to experience that kind of pain. Scriptures call it, uh, um, describe it as childbirth, which uh, I don't have a lot of experience with uh, for obvious reasons. But a, a few of you have, I imagine. I hear it's a delight, just a lot of fun. All around, all around fun, not painful at all. And I, I'm kidding. But the scripture talks about it as childbirth, that if you want to bring something new in the world, it's going to be painful. It's going to be difficult. These glass windows around us tells the story of how Jesus is going to give birth to something new, and it's going to cost him his life. It's going to be that painful. And I've found that anytime you want to challenge the status quo, it's going to be that painful. So here's, I say all of this to say this. Jesus is about to go on a journey, and so are we. Over the season of Lent, we're going to walk through these stories of baptism, temptation, calling the disciples. Finally, he makes it into Jerusalem with the entry, and you've got communion, and you've got the cup of suffering, and you've got 30 pieces of silver in that little bag there where he gets betrayed by a close friend. Then you've got the rooster. Three times, he's denied by a close friend. Like the whole world, even his close friends, turn against him. You've got the, the, the crown of thorns, the cross, and then eventually uh, the phoenix, which represents resurrection into eternal life. This is the story. This is the thing that we're going we're to go on this journey. And, and, and if you're going to start a journey that's going to include, I mean, when you look at these images, pretty much as soon as you get to back there, like this whole wall sucks. Have you thought about this? They're not good experiences. Jesus is not enjoying himself. Half the story is Jesus' is suffering. It's no good. I mean, none of these things you want. You don't want your friends to sell you out. You don't want your friends to betray you. You don't want to have to be forced to drink a cup of suffering. We'll talk about what that means. Wear a crown of thorns, not figuratively, but literally, and also sometimes figure. Like, this is really hard. So if that's where your story's going, which, by the way, if you want to do anything new in the world, you're going to have to face some trials. You need to start well. And that's what I'm going to look at today. How do you start well? What do you need to make it through a difficult story? And we find the answer to that, I believe, in the story of Jesus' baptism and temptation. So I'm going to spend some time in the scriptures today. Fun fact, my computer broke. So uh, I'm just going to preach from the word today. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Trigger warning. <laughs> and uh, um, if you want to follow along, because uh, I didn't create slides, you can actually pull out the Bible. There's, there's this thing. It's black. It's in your pews. I don't know if you're familiar with the paper version. This is the OG. And um, if you have the large print edition, you can follow along on page 1499. If not, you can go to Matthew chapter 
uh, 3, starting with verse 13. But I think most of the Bibles are large print edition in here. There might not be all of them. Um, and it's on page 1499, Matthew 3. If you're a visual learner, I'm a visual learner. I got to be able to see something. So that's really important to me. And um, Tim, I think I'm going to skip the whole uh, screen share thing just because. Um, why not? Uh, but Matthew chapter 3, starting with verse 13, is where we see the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And there's something about preaching these stained glass that I feel really compelled to come, like, stand in the midst of them. <laughs> I don't know if I'm getting too close to people. Here's what it says. Matthew 3, starting with verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. Pause there. John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. He uh, was born a little bit before Jesus. They share a similar birth narrative, if you remember. Um, and John was called to prepare the way. The important thing you need to know about John the Baptist is that John the Baptist represents the Old Testament here. See, the Old Testament was uh, prophesying that a Messiah would come, a king who would bring in a new kind of kingdom, or at that point they weren't really sure that it would be a new kind of kingdom, but they would, it would be in the line of David, and some king as great as David would come, and it was prophesied that Elijah, this prophet, would come and prepare the way, and so John the Baptist fulfills that role for Elijah. And so John the Baptist represents the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, this old way, and, 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 and he's going to pass the baton to this new thing that Jesus is giving birth to. And so Jesus goes to John to be baptized. Jesus' baptism is a, is a passing of baton, so to speak, like Elijah to Elisha. It's from John the Baptist to Jesus, the old way. Jesus is going to start a new thing in this baptism. So he goes to John to be baptized, and, and look what John says. John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? We, uh, uh, many of us were raised in an uh, evangelical culture that has very strong views on baptism, and uh, I shared some of this in our baptism class just last, uh, last week, two weeks ago. Okay, yeah, some point in the past, and um, uh, in this uh, evangelical culture, baptism is, is, is something that, that you do. Uh, some, some versions of evangelicalism say baptism is how you get saved. you got to be baptized. And some would say you have to be baptized a certain way to be saved. Like if you just get water poured on you, it doesn't count. you got to be dunked. We kind of talk through some of these uh, assumptions that people make about baptism. And that baptism is this profound moment that God is going to wash away all of your sins. Now, here's the thing. Th that comes from a legitimate place. That was kind of how John the Baptist viewed it. John the Baptist viewed baptism as a washing away of your sins. He's like, repent and believe the gospel. And so John, thinking of baptism in that way, because that's kind of a logical way to think of baptism, this ceremonial cleansing, he's like, Jesus, I can't baptize you. What am I going to wash away? You need to baptize me. I'm the sinner who needs to be baptized. And so we see here, right, and, and it's funny because I did a whole workshop and I quoted all these pastors and talking about how we view baptism a little bit differently. Um, and I... And then I run into this verse today, and I'm like, oh, it's, it's like right here. I didn't even, I should have looked at Jesus' baptism. And here's the first thing we realize about Jesus' baptism is that, of course, baptism isn't about salvation. Jesus didn't need to be saved. And it's not necessarily even just, I mean, part of it's this idea of cleansing, but it's obviously more than that. And Jesus is challenging John the Baptist. He says, no, you misunderstand what baptism is going to mean. And so he convinces John the Baptist, I'm going, Jesus is going to be baptized, and look what happens. This is the point of baptism more than anything. He says, uh, let it be so. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. That's code word for 
we're fulfilling the Old Testament tra transition from the old to this new. We're going to, you know, I, you were, you're representing Elijah, I'm representing this Messiah. So we're going to fulfill that. We're going to pass the baton. So John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment, heaven was opened. And he saw the Spirit of God ascending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, and I want you not to miss this, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. In a nutshell, that's what we believe baptism is in our tradition. It's a, it's a place where we recognize and acknowledge that which we already know is true, a moment where we say, hey, you are now, you are part of God's family. You are a child of God. You belong to this community, and you are deeply loved. That's kind of how we view, that's how we view baptism here. That's why we baptize children, because we're not going to wait for kids to grow up to include them in our families. That would be, well, that would be very mean. Yeah, no, when we think of it as this blessing and like, here's, here's the thing about this. This is the first place outside of the birth narratives where Jesus, where God actually says that Jesus is God's son. Outside of the birth narrative, this is where God, the heavens open up and in Jesus' baptism, God comes down in this special and profound way and says, you are my child and I am well pleased. I want to meddle a little bit. So my apologies if I get this all, if I screw us all up. I'm going from an outline, all right? So just grace for me. I get myself into trouble when I do that. Are you guys all familiar with atonement theories? Anyone heard that phrase before? One of the most popular atonement theories is what they call substitutionary atonement. Okay, I'm going to butcher it. So this is, this is like just my, Joe's version of substitutionary atonement. And it goes a little bit like this. God is angry with you because you all are sinners. And God is so angry, God needs a place to put God's anger. And so God's going to put God's anger on Jesus and make Jesus pay for your sins. He's going to be your substitute, okay? It's a legitimate atonement theory. Um, I think it's a very popular one. My challenge, my problem with it actually is, is, is that it's probably the default that a lot of people were raised. I was raised this way. I was told stories. I was told stories of like uh, versions of the, the, the moral uh, trolley thing, but it was with God, where God had to choose, like there's some story where a dad and the son got caught in the tracks. Anyone remember this story? Yeah, I'm getting some not, yeah, yeah, you guys, are, the dad and the kid gets stuck in the tracks, and, and, and in order to save everyone on the train, he has to choose to, for his son to be sacrificed. It probably is a worship song, I don't know. But it's this idea, I don't know, it might be. <laughs> And it's this idea that God like, had to kill God. God killed God's son in order to save us. That's the idea. We are addicted to the idea that God is angry with us. So much so that we actually, we, we, we make it so that it sounds like God is angry with God's own son. Think about, we know where the story's going. Does God kill Jesus? We know who kills, like it's the systems of, it's the kingdoms of this world that rise up and engage in unjust practices and false trials and hang them on the cross. That's where the story's headed. God isn't pleased with that. We know how God feels about Jesus at the beginning of Jesus' story. This is my son, whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. 
Does it sound like God's angry at Jesus? We're so addicted to anger, we make God angry at everyone, even people God isn't even angry with. Here's the first, if, you, if you're going to go through a difficult story, like Jesus is about to, his, his ministry is beginning, he's going to face a lot of difficulties, the first thing to surviving a difficult story is knowing who you are. Because if you let all of these stories define who you are, if you let the cross define who you are, or the, thorn of, you know, the crown of thorns, or, or your friend's betrayals, or your friend's denials, or the suffering that you experience, if you let that define you, you can't. You gotta start with the baptism and recognizing that the world, the kingdoms of this world, the people of this world are gonna tell you all kinds of stuff, but in God and in Christ, you are loved. God is not angry with you. You are a child of God. You are. And if you can hold on to that, and I've been able to survive some really difficult things, and, and I'm, I lived a, I've lived a pretty privileged life, but I can, I've been able to survive some pretty difficult things because people have helped me remi- helped remind me that what has happened to me doesn't have to define me, that I am loved, that I am a child of God, and that God is not upset with me. So that's number one. To survive a difficult story, you gotta know your worth. You gotta know who you are. That's really important. So the story goes on. He's baptized, and Jesus now is beginning his ministry. And the problem with the Bible is the time isn't right up here in the corner like I'm used to. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, so this is when I don't have my manuscript. I'm just making off the wall. So he goes on and he says that. And then, and then Jesus, before Jesus begins his ministry, he, he, this happens. Chapter 4, verse 1. It says that Jesus was led by the Spirit. So God is now leading Jesus. And he takes him out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. So once again, 40 days representing the 40 years in the wilderness. This idea that 40 always happened before something new would happen. 40 was code word in scripture that something new was coming, that there would be a new generation. Because 40 years in the wilderness was very practical. 40 years meant that all of the previous generation that denied God would grow old and die, and a new generation would come up. And so it was this idea that a new thing was happening. And 40 years will actually produce a new generation, but then 40 days became symbolic of that as well. So 40 days in the wilderness, something new is going to be given birth. And uh, after 40 days of not eating, he's hungry. Next page. So the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. He said, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against stone. And Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and the angels came and attended him. I was uh, looking into this passage, and um, 
You know, this temptation story at the beginning of Jesus' ministry for a really important reason. What you'll find is that in Scripture and in Jesus' story, later in Jesus' story near the end, um, Jesus engages in very similar conversation with religious rulers. In fact, in the Gospel of Matthew, the only other place where it says somebody tested or tempted Jesus is amongst the religious rulers. And it's called this controversy uh, dialogue or this kind of dialogue that was rooted in, in Jewish culture. So it was really common amongst Jewish leaders and rabbis to engage in debate by quoting scripture at each other. You kind of have to think of like a rap battle, but like Jewish with Old Testament scripture. It was like, it was like, it was, it was this, it was this controversy. That's how they engaged in conversation is like, we, huh? All right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, sounds great. Um, but it was this legitimate form of back and forth. Here's what scripture says. No, this is what scripture says. And it was like this debate. And it was part of the ancient Hebrew culture. And, and I think some of it's still alive in Jewish culture today. It's kind of part of that Jewish uh, personality. And uh, so that's what you see in this story about Jesus being tested or tempted by, by Satan. Um, later, you see very similar back and forth arguments about scripture from these religious rulers. And that is the case for a particular reason that I hadn't thought of before. Jesus' story right here at the beginning all the way to the end is bookend by these arguments, this argument discourse, these dialogues, this back and forth with scripture. And uh, it's, it's that way for a reason. Because when you start reading the scriptures, and if you're not careful, I talked about how God doesn't kill Jesus. Um, it, it can become very easy for us to say, well, the Jewish leaders killed Jesus. And the Jewish leaders are the real enemies in this story because they convinced Rome to kill Jesus. And I'm just here to say that that kind of thinking has actually fueled a lot of anti-Semitism, okay? Very profound anti-Semitism throughout the history. The reason we have this story with Satan is for a particular reason. And it's the second lesson in surviving a difficult story. You gotta know who your enemy is. You gotta know who your enemy is. And, and I'm just spoiler alert, everyone. Your enemy is never a human. It might feel at times that the person against you is your enemy, and I promise you, your enemy, your adversary, is never a human. It's always this kingdom of the world or these systems and powers and these influences. And let me just, humans can be agents of evil. Humans can be agents of bad things, but... Enemy is not against flesh and blood, as Paul talks about. In fact, this is why Jesus, when he's hanging on the cross, he's hanging on the cross and he's looking at the Roman soldiers and he's able to look at them and say, God, forgive them, they know not what they do. Because he understood that they weren't the real problem. The real problem was this deeper story happening under the surface that we get a glimpse of at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So there's a lot of ways to think about Satan. You might think about Satan as an actual person. There's some real challenges with that, uh, you know, rationally, um, just because, you know, Scripture isn't really clear. You can think of Satan as a personification of evil um, or as a representation of evil, which is a little bit easier. But however you view Satan, the important thing to recognize is that there are evil forces in the world. And in our baptism... Part of the baptism liturgy we have is to reject those evil forces. 
In other words, there are things that make this world not the way it's meant to be. Whether that be an actual Satan or a personification of evil or just the brokenness of humanity or the corrupt and just systems, however you want to think about it, there are, and that's the actual issue. Uh, Paul says it like this in Ephesians. He says, for our struggle is not against humans, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. I think a lot of us tend to be, um, you know, uh, our, our community tends to be a little bit more intellectual, a little bit more uncomfortable with this idea of spiritual warfare. And, um, and I get that. But I think one of the benefits of understanding that there are spiritual forces is this, is it's really important to know who your enemy is. And it's really important to recognize that it's not a human. That if you're being hurt by somebody, that they're not the real problem, that they are a broken human, they are a beloved child of God, they are loved by God, there are probably influences in their life that have brought them to this place, they are still redeemable, that humans are never the enemy, even if they do stuff that causes us great harm. So Jesus goes on, and one of the temptations, all of these temptations are rooted in Jesus' ministries and what he's going to do. He's going to feed a bunch of people, so he tries to tempt him with that, et cetera. But my favorite one is he, he brings them up on this top, on top of a, a big mountain, like the, 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 the mountain that we see there, and he shows them all the kingdoms of this world. He shows them Rome. This is what the kingdom of his, that world at the time, Rome. He says, Rome, with all of like Caesar, who was basically a demigod, and, and people worshipped Caesar, and all of these other kings, like King Herod, and all these providences. And he's like, all these kingdoms of the world, if you bow down and worship me, I will give them to you, Satan says. And Jesus says, no thanks. What I find really interesting is in the very next chapter, Jesus then teaches us to pray. We prayed this earlier. Do you know what Jesus invites us to pray? He says, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So in chapter 4, Jesus says, I don't want your kingdom. In chapter 5, Jesus says, God, bring your kingdom to earth. So if you want to survive a difficult story, first, you got to know who you are. Second, you got to know who your enemy is. And two, you got to be able to tell when, when something's fake. So to help us, I've, I've, I've pulled, I have some photos of, of things that were knockoffs, thanks to Facebook for helping me. So here are some really good knockoffs. Here's the first one. Here's some skateboard shoes. You should be able to tell pretty easily that those are not, those are fashion professional skateboard shoe. Skit, 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 skit. Yeah, that doesn't even, I'm so dyslexic, I didn't even notice that was spelled wrong. So, uh, next one. This, uh, this couple uh, ordered a, a knitted blanket and got some strings. A little disappointing, right? Uh, next one. This is bad. It's so close. It's so close, but it's so far away. Get it off the screen. I don't need to... It's great, you know, shoes for your underarms. That's, you know, angry Garfield. Uh, I don't remember the next one. What's the next one? You know, you've heard of Dove. Try washing yourself a little bit of Dave. Dave, uh, this, person, this person thought they were ordering a normal dustpan. And they got that dustpan. Uh, and, and this is the, I think this is the last one. 
Um, they thought they were getting toilet paper. <laughs> and they ordered this toilet paper, and it turns out this is toilet paper for a dollhouse. Okay? This is how I like to imagine Satan's temptation of Jesus, is this image right here. Leave this one up. So <laughs> Satan's like, hey, look, guys. Jesus, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world if you just bow down. And Jesus looks at all the kingdoms. Have you seen the kingdoms of this world? You really want that? How's Rome working out? <laughs> that empire lasts much longer? People still worshiping Caesar? It's like, uh, it's like the old phrase, people who run for president, the only people who run for president are the ones who shouldn't have it. Because the people who would be good at it like, don't want it. I don't want that job. Have you seen the kingdoms of this world? And what it takes and how they work? And what's going on with them? And Satan's like, you would love all the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus is like, I don't want a thousand. I would rather have the real thing than a thousand of these miniature toilet papers. <laughs> like, I want the real thing. I want something that's different, and I want something that's better, and I want something that's authentic, and that's inclusive, and that's loving, and that's justice-oriented. I want the real thing. And if you're going to survive through life in general, as a person of faith, you got to know the difference between what's real and what's fake. I, um, I was trying to think of a story to illustrate this, and I was like, I shouldn't tell that story. So I, um, I was going to tell a story about how I almost worked for a church, and I was like, I shouldn't tell that story. And uh, so I asked Alyssa this morning, I was like, hey, I'm trying to think of a story of like, the difference between the kingdoms of this world and the you know, kingdom of heaven. And she's like, hey, what about that church you almost worked for? And I was like, no. <laughs> so now I'm telling you, God spoke to my wife. Uh, before I ended up at Central Avenue, which was our parent church, before we became Central City and now City View, um, I had a couple different offers out on the table, and one of them was for this uh, mega church. And I don't want to knock mega churches, but you know. <laughs> I'm not saying small churches are better, I'm just saying uh, the small church. <laughs> um, and so there is this, uh, this, this mega church that, you know, was known, the pastor was known for being kind of a jerk. And I'm not saying that's a stereotype for megachurches. I'm just saying this particular pastor was known for, you know, being a bit of a jerk. But I knew that if I went and worked there, man, I would have books published by now. People would know who I was. I'd be teaching places. I would probably be miserable. But, man, the notoriety and the accomplishments that I could, you know, build from being at a well-recognized, very large church, it was significant. And I was really wrestling. Do I go to like a small church in Southeast Ohio, in Appalachia, or do I take this like once-in-a-lifetime appointment at this large church that was like at the time the second largest Methodist church in the denomination? And I'd like to say the decision was easy, but you know, when you're in, those, when you're in that place, it's not, is it? You, you've been given opportunities that you're like, this is a great opportunity, but there's something in your soul that feels a little sick about it. You've been there, right? And you have to kind of wrestle with that. And thankfully, I had people in my life that helped me see through it differently. And, 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 and I was able to like eventually make the right decision. Because if you're going to make it through life, and you're going to make it through difficult seasons, you're going to make it through changes in your career or whatever, if you're going to go and take up our cross, which is what Jesus invites us to do, by the way. Jesus is like, hey, 
back here at the beginning of the story, she's like, take up your cross, and I want you to follow me around the room and experience this story with me. That's what we're going to do. And if you're going to do that, you've got to know who you are. You've got to know who your enemy is, and it's never a human. There's something else at work in lives of people, influences that make people, you know, who are broken and we're hurting, and we just got to give each other grace. And you've got to know how to tell a fake. The kingdoms of this world are going to tempt you. They're going to try to draw you in. They're going to tell you that money, wealth, notoriety, fame, power, all of these things are what you want. And I'm here to tell you, with all the brokenness that I can, it's not. Not going to give you joy. Rome would go on to close. Caesars would stop being worshipped. But you know what? Look at you all here. Look around the room. There's still people thousands of years later saying, hey, I want to learn a little more about that Jesus guy. It's something about that Jesus guy that seems really important and different to this day. And you know why? Because Jesus would always call out the fakes, always turn down the temptations and go towards what is real, go towards even if it was going to cost him his life. And that's the journey we're going to start and we're going to go on. Um, And next week, we're going to talk about how Jesus invites us on that journey when we look at Jesus inviting his disciples on the journey, the calling of the disciples, as, as well as the Sermon on the Mount. So let's pray. God, we come before you and we give you thanks. We ask that you would uh, remind us what it means to follow after you, to be a people who love you and serve you, that you'd give us what we need for the journey ahead. That whenever we face difficulties or challenges, when we face a world that is trying to entice us with things we know we don't need, give us the strength to say no and to move on. We trust that you're able to move in and through us. So Holy Spirit, descend on us as you did. Your son, remind us that we are your child that we are loved and that you are well pleased with us. You are not angry with us. Remind us of your great love today. In your name.